0: It all started with the butterflies. I'd asked my former PhD advisor about any potential job opportunities he'd heard about. He mentioned several, consulting jobs in Canada, a position with the United Nations in Rome, Italy, but it wasn't until I heard about the two professor jobs in China that my stomach really started fluttering. This was really confusing. My brain was trying to figure out why are you getting so excited about China? And I couldn't come up with an answer because I'd I'd never dreamed about going to China or I really had never thought about China much at all. So it was a total mystery as to why I seemed to get so excited about going to China, but I didn't forget it. Regardless, I was racked by so much guilt about having to leave my family, I made a conscious decision not to focus on China, but the consulting positions in Canada instead. So, for the next several months, I focused on networking and searching for jobs and applying to different consulting positions. Even though I had a pretty good network of a few people uh, who used to work in consulting and talk to them constantly and ask them for all sorts of ideas, it never went anywhere. I didn't even get a single interview out of all that work over months, maybe up to a year of searching. So it was like I was banging my head against the wall. So slowly, I started to come to the conclusion that maybe being a consultant in Canada wasn't in the future for me. So I returned to my advisor and I asked him, if he could tell me more about the two professor positions in China. It turned out that one was in a city called Linan and the other in Nanjing. I barely heard of Nanjing before, but I didn't know anything about it. And I'd never even heard about Linan. So I didn't know how I was going to choose which place city to go to, to work. So I turned to my Chinese office mate at the time, Bin, and I asked Bin, what do you think, what would be the better city to work in? And it was really clear to Bin that Nanjing was the better place for me, because it was much larger and more international than Linan, which was a little more isolated. So she was quite sure I'd have a much easier time adapting to living in Nanjing. So I decided fairly early on that, okay, Nanjing, I'm gonna trust Bin and I'll pursue the position in Nanjing. So I initiated a flurry of communications by email with Nanjing Forestry University communicating with my potential future translator assistant. So we went back and forth for quite a while because I had to send quite a few documents. I had to prove that I had the PhD from University of Toronto, and I had to prove my master's, so I had to send copies of the certificates I had as well as the transcripts of the courses I took for each of those degrees, as well as a medical, a criminal record check, a copy of the passport. It just seemed like endless documents. But nevertheless, things kept moving forward. There was never a no, never uh, a difficulty that I couldn't quickly get over. So, everything was moving forward quite smoothly. So, that just reinforced that this was the right direction for me. So, by Spring of 2012, that's when Bin started to suggest that maybe I should also go visit the university, because universities in China are very different. From universities in Canada, and so it sounded like a great idea. But I, I just there's no way I would have the money just to cough up to do a quick trip to China just to check out a university. But Ben said she'd recently heard about an opportunity to go to China for a very little money and that was through her network of friends in the U.S. It turned out that the Chinese government, or the Communist Party of China, was trying to lure back PhD students once they completed their degrees in the U.S., trying to lure them back to China so that they would bring their idea or invention and develop a business out of it and settled down in China. So, Ben had heard about this and did a little research for me and discovered there was no problem for a Canadian to join the group and travel together just as long as I had a PhD. So, this sounded like a great idea. This was yet a third thing There's just no way I would have known about this opportunity to go to China, that was subsidized by the Chinese government, without been there, and her husband had also been investigating it for me. So, anyway, I had the PhD, but I didn't have a business idea, so I thought of my friend, Paul, who is an entrepreneur, and I approached him and right away he jumped at the opportunity to come to china he did have a business idea already because he'd been working on something and so that was our agreement that we would both go together and i would be the one with the phd in the group of two of us uh, to represent our business idea in china so in august of 2012, Paul and I found ourselves in China with 98 other Chinese PhD students traveling on two buses throughout eastern China. I think I told the trip leader, maybe before I even left for the trip, that my whole purpose was to go for this interview at a university. And he was completely okay with that because it still meant that a PhD was returning to or going to China and going to settle down and help China. So there was no problem that I was using this trip to get to Nanjing. And luckily for me, this particular trip, because not every trip was the same. They would visit different cities for different trips, but this particular trip was going through Nanjing. It wasn't stopping there for uh, a dinner or anything to stay overnight, but they were passing through Nanjing. So that's what I did. I basically spent a week with the group of PhD students, and then after a week, I got dropped off in Nanjing. But that first week, I do have a lot of interesting memories about my first impressions of China. So, first, we were fairly isolated. We we're on, sitting on buses all the time, traveling two buses. And so we we're interacting with each other. But, you know, all the Chinese students were from the US, so they could speak English and so on. And, um, you know, they they weren't living in China at the time, though. So, so anyway, we traveled around like this, and and it, it's almost like a blur. We went to so many different dinners. Uh, so I can probably the best way is to just share one of the dinners to give you an idea of what it was like. Basically, it was mayors of cities that were trying to entice people to settle in their city and develop a business in their city Uh, so you know the economic benefits would go to their um, their city and so the first city we stopped at was called Wuxi and that was probably maybe an hour to two hour bus drive from Shanghai where we had flown into and I remember we booked in to a Brand new Hilton Hotel, and so we're all booked in there the first night. And the following night, the second night in China, we had a big dinner that we were invited to. So the mayor of Wuxi invited us to this big dinner. So we had a big banquet in a banquet hall, you know, all 100 of us plus the officials the mayor was with. So maybe. I don't know, 10 to 12 tables of people, each each table, round table, having eight to 10 people. And so it would be a big sort of a dining experience and all sorts of food, just endless food. and And this is where I first got a sense of the hierarchy in Chinese society, because both Paul and I were just we we got so much attention because we were the only foreigners, real foreigners on the trip, Only, the only ones that weren't Chinese. So we always got to sit at the top table where the VIPs were or sit with the mayor. And it turns out a mayor of a city is a very powerful person. You know, they're sort of on their way to the top. This is a stepping stone to get to the top, you know, Xi Jinping, I think, was a mayor of a city at one point. And so uh, so to sit together with the mayor of the city was quite a big deal in China. And, of course, these cities, are they're all like millions of people, you know, bigger cities than I'd ever been in before. So the first place, it was the uh, Hilton Hotel. And so we went to a big dinner. And so this was typical of all the big dinners. They all have round tables, and you know, as they say, there's a hundred, hundred and twenty people, something like that. Lots of food, a turntable in the middle of the the table where the food was, and you just spin the turntable and just take what you want. But there's also lots of drinking of alcohol. So this was all new to me. I knew nothing about this whole drinking culture that China has. And I don't think many people <laughs> know about it. And uh, so whenever and so whenever you would drink alcohol, uh, it was always in the form of a toast. You would never drink alone, for instance. You wouldn't just sort of quietly take a sip of your beer or wine or baijiu. Those were the three things that you were offered and the very best to drink, to develop the best bonds with Chinese, was Baijiu, which is their sort of strong alcohol. So it's clear liquid, pretty vile tasting, pretty strong. And uh, so they would have, uh, you'd have these little glasses that would uh, hold the Baijiu. I mean, it would vary at these banquets. I think we, uh, they mainly use maybe small wine glasses, which is actually quite large. So uh, in terms of drinking Baijiu, because this is alcohol that's maybe 40, 50, 60% alcohol. So anyway, what would happen is that everyone would be strongly encouraged to have Baijiu. And if that if you couldn't handle Baijiu, you could have beer or, or red wine they never really had true white wine. Sometimes they call baijiu white wine, but it's not wine at all. Uh, it's totally hard liquor, and so everyone would have a glass, typically a baijiu, at their table. And you know, this is after you started eating, and it doesn't. It's not paired with any food. This is another thing. They don't pair at their drinks with any of their food. So this is kind of a a Western thing, I've realized, realized. they don't have that at all in China. So anyways, the way it would work with the toasts is that we would toast each other at a table. And we also had whole tables toasting whole other tables. And so there was loads of drinking. And so the way it would work at a table is that a lower status person at the table would get up from their chair and with their baijo and walk around to the highest status at, person at the table. And that would be the first person they would drink to. So they would just indicate one-on-one walk up and, hey, uh, I wanna have a toast with you sort of thing. And and then the high status person would stand up. And usually I was sitting beside the high status person. I was put to the right of them. so you know, maybe the mayor or something. And so they would get up with third drink and then they would clink the glasses together and say, "ganbei," which means bottoms up. And so then they would empty their glasses, you know, completely empty. and uh, And then there was always someone following them, everyone around with a bottle of Baijiu to refill instantly, like instantly after you've finished drinking. Someone is there refilling your glass right to the brim, typically. I guess if there's big wine glasses, they might not do that to the brim, but if they had the proper Baijiu glasses, which are quite small, they would be always topped right up for the next toast. And so then that person after being with the highest status person at the table would move to the next person of, you know, the next step down in, in status and then basically work their way around the table. So typically, uh, even though the official sort of baijo glasses were relatively small, uh, they didn't always have them. Sometimes it was wine glasses. You would actually toast maybe eight or 10 times at your table like individually. Uh, So you didn't often get up as a whole group and toast together. Sometimes that would happen, but it was more one on one. And so you could do it eight or 10 times. And then uh, we I went this the only place I witnessed it at these big banquets, we might have a whole table get up led by the highest status person, they would lead all of us to go to another table and they would introduce themselves to the other table and say, we want to toast you. And then that's where you have all of us from one table that are toasting all of the people at the other table. And then there might even be more individual toasts between them. So there was, Baijo was flowing very freely. So this is, in the end, it, it felt like that was the most important part of the banquet. Uh, drinking the baijiu, overeating. After about a week on the trip, traveling on the two buses, and going from city to city, and banquet to banquet, and meeting various mayors of cities in Jiangsu Province, we were passing through Nanjing, so this is when I left the group. I'd arranged with my potential future assistant, Jung to meet at a certain place, to get off at the bus and meet him. He was meeting me at the bus, and then he took me to the hotel where I was going to stay. And But he had some things to do, so he left me for a few hours to take a rest, mainly, um, while well, he went and did the duties that he had to do. But he was coming back at night to take me out for dinner. So anyway, I had a few hours by myself, so I had a bit of a rest, but I was a little too excited. I mean, it was actually quite different because this was the first time I was you know, out in China on my own, not as part of a group of you know, uh, two busloads of uh, PhDs from the U.S. And so, so anyway, so suddenly I was face-to-face with China. So I had a little rest in the hotel and I decided, well, why don't I just wander around and I had my camera with me and just take some pictures. So I'm just wandering the streets and the first thing I noticed is just all the traffic you know, not, not the car traffic so much, more like the e-bikes uh, in the, on the sides of the roads, just an endless stream, right? like just unbelievable. And so when you crossed a road, you had to first check for, you know, the the kind of bicycle lane, which was filled with e-bikes. It wasn't really many bicycles and uh, and it was just a constant stream. So you had to be looking there. And then you would have to look at the cars while you're crossing the main part of the road. And then on the other side, of course, with all the e-bikes going along there. That's the first impression I had. But I was looking around and, you know, I was learning how to cross the street. And uh, I went to take some pictures and I realized, oh my gosh, my batteries had died. You know, I had a battery for flashes and I guess, I guess for the light meter and so on. And so I needed to get some batteries. So I kept wandering around, and I saw this place. You didn't; everything was in Chinese, like Chinese characters. And so you don't really see much English. But I did see this one place. It's uh, it, there were English words, and it said something like the uh, golf clubhouse, White Horse Park. And so I just thought, okay, I golf clubhouse. Um, Maybe not the best place to get batteries, but at least there's some English there. Maybe they do. And so I walked up to the golf club house and I entered the building and there was a girl on the desk, on this uh, front desk. And I look over to her and she just suddenly, her head whips up and she's just staring at me. And I'm just go, thinking, well, what's going on here? This is weird. And so I just start walking right up to her, and she's just staring at me. And uh, and I just figured, well, maybe they know a little bit of English. So I just tried in uh, slow English to explain that I needed batteries. At the same time, I was opening the camera and pulling the batteries out, trying to indicate... That I needed new batteries, so I just asked her, "Do you have any batteries?" and uh, and she just said, "One moment," you know, and told me to wait, and then she disappeared, left the desk, and she went into a back room, and I'm waiting, just a couple of minutes, maybe three minutes or something, and then she comes back, and there's like six girls, you know, all of them just staring at me. <laughs> And I'm going and, and kind of giggling a little bit. And I wonder what the heck is going on here. And so anyway, I just, uh, you know, they're kind of giggling and looking at me and I'm looking back at them. And and then one of them just says, can I have a selfie with you, you know? And I go, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> And so she comes up and walks up and stands beside me and takes a selfie of the two of us. And then she goes back to the group and she starts showing the picture to everyone. They're all looking at it. And then another girl goes, can I have one too? And then she comes up, same thing, selfie with her. And then another and another and another and another, (laughs) like all of them. It was five or six of them. And so then they were back in their group and they're all showing each other the selfies they've taken with me and kind of glancing at me every once in a while and giggling a little bit. And I'm going, what the heck is going on here? And I'm going, but do you have any batteries? So I say that to the original girl and she just says, no. <laughs> and then that just kind of fell flat because that was the whole point of getting there. I'm thinking, we well, just did all these selfies. Like that's what I was waiting for. Like I thought you were looking for the battery. And so I just walk out. This was just the first of many incidents like this. It just totally caught me off guard. This is in a city of 8 million and I would have felt like a movie star. Uh, that you just did not see foreigners around. This is where Nanjing is completely different from Shanghai and Beijing, I'd say, the biggest cities in China where you're much more likely to see foreigners. So, we went out for dinner that night and had a delicious, I think I had some kind of fish soup. Suantai Yue, I remember, is the nice. So sour cabbage and fish. It was delicious and spicy. Oh, it was just the best I'd ever had. And so anyway, we arranged that the next day is when the interview was going to take place and that they were gonna give me a tour of the campus. And so we arranged for Jung to meet me the next morning, which he did. And then he took me by bus to the university, which wasn't far away. And the first person he took me to meet was the dean of management and economics. And that brings us to a close of the first episode of The Maple Dragon, the seven-year-long chronicles of a Canadian professor in China. On the next episode, Mark meets the dean. The three of us were together in the room. The Dean's English was not that good. A strange way of negotiating contracts. And he had actually doubled the salary, like just doubled it overnight. It was unbelievable. And the realization that China was nothing like he expected. I had to stop on the plane as an oblivious Chinese woman blocked the aisle with her foot while stowing her luggage. As the line backed up behind me, another Chinese woman blurted, You have to speak up. She's Chinese. Get early access, bonus episodes, and more inside Mark Robson's community at themapledragonpod.com. Join us every Monday for a new episode. Till next time, take care of yourself. Goodbye.